cloth Y'all would get ripped apart You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark We dropping nuggets like Carmelo with the Rucker Park Now we eating from state to state, we scrape the plate I put my eggs in a basket, took a leap of faith I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring Matt Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Matt Labrie, rocking with you, episode 187 of the Decoding Success Podcast. Today, we are bringing to you our friend, James Breakwell, professional comedy writer and amateur father of four girls ages eight and under. He is best known for his family humor Twitter account, which has the handle at Exploding Unicorn, which boasts more than a million followers. He went viral in April of 2016 on that account, and it transformed James from a niche comedy writer into one of the most popular dads on social media. Since becoming internet famous, James has been featured in the USA Today, US Weekly, The Daily Mail, Metro, The Telegraph, Cosmopolitan, BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, various ABC and Fox TV news affiliates, and many more. With that being said, we are bringing James to you today to decode masculinity and much more, including relationships, what it takes to use or operate your passion as a side hustle while keeping your day job, why passion isn't necessarily something you should solely rely on. Listen, the list goes on. We're diving into a shit ton of topics today, and we're really excited to have you rocking with us. With that being said, I always urge you, when you find this episode to be of value, you're listening to this for free. When you find this episode to be of value, make sure you're sharing it. If it's on Instagram, if it's on Twitter, if it's on Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever it is, just make sure you tag us so that we can show you love in return. I always personally like to reach out, make sure that I'm reaching out to all the individuals that share such amazing feedback and hey even if you're texting it or sending it in via email it means the absolute world to us to hear from you and I know James will feel the same exact way and with all of that being said without further ado we bring to you our friend James Breakwell. James my friend welcome to the show super excited to have you I know you have some exciting things on the horizon with your new book and all the amazing stuff you put out on social really excited for this opportunity man thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me I'm uh, I'm pumped to be here. I'm glad. I'm glad. I'm pumped for this. And uh, we we ask the same question over and over. Now, James, we're nearly 200 episodes into the show. We have never gotten the same response to this one question. Uh, I'm curious, how do you personally define success? I think success is being able to do what you want to do with your life. So that could mean money, that could mean family, that could mean recognition, that could mean having the entire world leave you alone. But if you are doing what you want to do, I think that's success. I love that. Now, by the way, if you see me looking down, I'm writing. I didn't make okay. that known, <laughs> but I just started to write down your definition. And I was like, oh, fuck, let me make this. Let me let me make this be known. But I'm curious, what has gotten James to that point? Was it a certain person, people? Was it a certain event or numerous events? I think it was just, uh, well, one, a lack of sleep and two, just a, a tremendous drive because it, right from the start, I always did what I wanted to do, but I also did the things I didn't want to do. So, you know, you've got the, you've got the day job, you've got all these other things that you, they keep you busy. That doesn't mean you can't be a writer on the side. That doesn't mean you can't compose jokes. It doesn't mean you can't build up an online following. So I kind of did both avenues at once until, until, you know, you built up the, or I, I built up the, the audience to the point where it was actually just 
generating revenue and doing all of those things. And I think that's a, a good lesson for everybody. If there's something you want to succeed at, if there's something you want to put in the time for, you don't have to quit your day job and go all in on it. Cause that's a, that's a risky maneuver. And if you run out of money, you starve yourself out and you might not take another shot at it. So if you have something you're really passionate about, do it on the side for a little while, maybe forever. And uh, you kind of get the best of both worlds. Now, I'm really curious because you did this smart. What you said is very smart. And I did this very dumb. Uh, And I I like to listen. I keep it real. Uh, I previously worked for one of the sharks on Shark Tank first job out of college. And instantly, once I felt like the slightest bit of unhappy, I was like, all right, cool. Let's start a business, you know. And yeah, sure. Did I have things in place such as financial security and whatnot? Yes. But the day you start a business is not the same day you're, you know, going to hit a certain level financially within that business. So I'm curious, like, what was it in your experience that signify that, okay, cool, James can now step away from the day job and do what he wants to do full time. Well, James never actually stepped away from the day job. So I still have it like most writers do or many writers do anyway. Uh, but there was a point, uh, I guess uh, I write under a pen name. And the reason I do that is because for years and years, uh, I didn't want to have to make a choice between the two because the day job paid money and writing didn't. So it's like, okay, if they come, if it come down, comes down to it, I would have to pick the day job. And uh, eventually it got to the point where I was making more money uh, you know, writing than I was at the day job. And that was kind of the transition point where it's like, okay, I guess I don't have to worry anymore. If this ever becomes an issue, if they lay that, lay down the law and say, Hey, you got to pick one or the other. I know which one I'm going to pick. Uh, at the same time, I had been doing both for so long that I realized I could keep doing both. And so that's kind of where I'm at right now. If I were to lose the day job, I would not look for another day job. Uh, But at the same time, there's no reason for me to quit it because I've become good enough multitasking that I can kind of maintain this online empire and write books and take care of my kids and, uh, you know, maintain this this other job as well. And it really helps uh, after COVID, everything went remote. So I kind of, you know, either way I'm in my house, either way I'm at my computer working. uh, So I've been able to kind of roll the two into one. Right, right. I love that. I love that. Now, you mentioned books. Uh, that is exactly how I found you, actually. We're going to dive into the new book coming out in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious. I, I'd like to get a little bit of a backstory. So I'm going to ask this question. It might be loaded here, but um, who was James in high school? Who was he hanging out with, et cetera? James has been a weird kid all the way through. I was, <laughs> I, was <laughs> I was a good student, but a lot of people thought of me as being really quiet. And I had this quirky sense of humor that people just weren't aware of unless you're one of my really close friends. And so at the end of a computer literacy class, uh, I started writing a fake book of the Bible. Just we had some free time to kill. I emailed it to my friends and they laughed. And that was kind of the, my, my first chance to really use writing as a comedy platform. And I just, I loved it. So I started emailing comedy articles to people I decided I wanted to be a comedy writer when I grew up. Uh, when I grew up, I I ended up going into journalism in uh, in college. I guess English, but I would. Yeah, my goal was to get to a newspaper, and I always thought I'd be the next Dave Barry, or at least I hoped I would be. I thought I'd work my way up through newspapers, get a newspaper column, and then kind of do columns and books and things like that. I ended up I got into journalism, and I absolutely hated it. I just I hated bothering people. I hated going and covering meetings where everybody was angry. I just I, I experienced secondhand embarrassment really strong. And when you're a newspaper reporter you just encounter secondhand embarrassment all day, every day. Everybody's just making a fool of themselves. And sometimes I was making a fool of myself as well. So I got out of that and I I go through that story in the book about how I kind of nuked my journalism career. And I got into something completely non-journalism related 
and I just started writing. And my goal was I, I went out and looked at uh, everybody else trying to get book deals. And I realized they didn't have an audience and they tried to land these book deals. And there were just all these people trying for a limited number of slots. And I thought, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to build up an audience and then book publishers will come to me. And so that's what I did. It took a really long time. I wrote a blog for a decade that nobody read. Then I moved on to Twitter and I, I figured out people like jokes about my kids. I started to gain some traction there built up to about 200,000 followers. Then Buzzfeed ran an article on me and I jumped up to about a million followers. And that's when I got contacted by an agent. That's when publishers were getting in touch with me. And that's when I finally got my book deal. So I I got there eventually. It took a while, but I I ended up playing out my my original plan, just kind of not in the way I expected. Well, I definitely appreciate the transparency, right? Because there's no such thing as an overnight success. You know, everyone... Mm -hmm. Um, everyone thinks an overnight success happens overnight, but it sometimes takes 15 years. In your case, how long did it actually take you to start seeing the, you know, the community start to build? I'm not even going to refer to it as followers, but the community. Uh, I joined Twitter in 2000. 12, I believe. And I started, I started gaining followers almost right away. That's when I really got the traction. I think I started the blog in 2007 or 2006, somewhere in there. And I kept the blog and the Twitter going uh, simultaneously for a number of years as well. There was some overlap. So 2012 is where I really started to turn things around, started to gain traction with that, uh, that online audience. And I actually was on Twitter for four years before it really, really took off. Uh, that was April of 2016 is when that Buzzfeed article ran. And that's when I officially went viral. So actually I can, I can pinpoint an exact date on that. I love that. Now, with that being said, what were you doing from a strategy perspective? Like, were you actually monitoring all of the content you were putting out there? Was it like, okay, cool. This hits a lot harder with the the people. They're retweeting it more. They're liking it more. They're sharing it more, et cetera. Like, were you like literally drilling down to that extent? Yes. I, uh, I went at it with scientific precision. So the drawback of blogging is there's just not that much feedback. So I, I prefer long form writing and books and long articles and things like that. But these blog posts were thousands and a thousand words or so. And uh, there just wasn't any feedback or there'd be very little. Somebody would say, ha ha, that's hilarious. And somebody would say, this is stupid, delete your blog. And that really isn't very useful for a thousand words of content. It's like, what went right? What went wrong? But Twitter back when I started was 140 characters. There's just one joke being measured. And if people like it, they, they hit the like button and they retweet it and it goes out to a wider audience. And if they don't like it, uh, they ignore it. And it just kind of you know descends into obscurity as all bad jokes should. So every time I wrote a joke, I got a score and I could figure out what worked and what didn't. And I'd like to say I was always good at joke writing and that, uh, you know, I just had to build an audience for it. But the truth is I go back and look at some of that early stuff and it's just terrible. So Twitter actually made me a better joke writer by showing me what worked and what didn't in that platform. And I just took all that feedback. I used it. I dialed in on my audience and that's how I was able to build up uh, the readers. What joke on Twitter hit the hardest? Like, do you know the exact tweet that like reached the most people? Uh, I do know the tweet that reached the most people, but it was long after I'd gone viral. So I think my top tweet of all time, uh, it's about uh, when me and my daughters were playing a variant of Dungeons and Dragons. And I I don't know that I can say it exactly, uh, but basically my daughter's we, I created a scenario where wolves were surrounding this town and they were supposed to fight the wolves. And instead they befriended the wolves and turned them into their own uh, personal wolf army. And I believe the closing line was girls, man, they're going to take over the world. And uh, that one, I think it has two or 300,000 likes on it. And that one, a lot of uh, kind of nerd blogs and uh, feminist blogs and things like that. They, they'll share that one over and over. 
I love that, man. That's so great. Now, where did comedy come into your life, though? Like, was there an inspiration from someone early on or uh, was it just, you know, just came about? Well, I always had the weird, quirky sense of humor. I probably got that from my dad. But as far as like recognizing what a comedy writer was, the only comedy writer I knew of was Dave Barry. And I delivered newspapers, so I saw saw his column in there. So that was really the only example I had to go by. So I definitely wanted to be like him. And sometimes people will compare me to him, which is the greatest compliment ever. Uh, I think he's way better than me. I also like uh, David Sedaris. I didn't uh, stumble across him until much later in life. Uh, but he's hilarious, but he's also good at putting hard into essays, which uh, which I'm not as good at. I Now, I, I dabbled in that a little bit in my new book here. I put some more personal stories, some more sentimental things in there. Uh, but that's a, a fine line to walk as far as, you know, uh, comedy and vulnerability at the same time. And I really think he has that mastered. That's awesome. So I'm actually really curious, like what kept you consistent on Twitter and maybe not even just on Twitter, but with the blog as well. You know, you were saying that the blog didn't have much traction. You went over to Twitter, you started to see traction taking place. Like what was it that kept you going? Was it your passion for it? You know, passion is uh, <laughs> passion can be unreliable because there's days you feel really unmotivated. I think it would just it was that drive that I want to be somebody who uh you know, I want to be somebody who writes. I want to, I want to get published. This is my goal and I'm going to go there. And I think above that and beyond that too, I just wanted to get to the point where I could stay home all day and, and not have a boss over me that I could write. Now, the thing I've realized is that when you become a writer, uh, you actually have thousands of bosses. Every reader thinks they're your boss, your publisher's your boss, your editor's your boss. So there's really no such thing as ever escaping a boss unless you become, you know, a, a vagabond or you're like a hermit in the woods. But yeah, I wanted to get out of the cubicle. I wanted to kind of define my own life and, uh, and and be at home and write. And so that's what kept me going. I love that. Now, what would James tell? I don't want to say his younger self, but, you know, James at the beginning of this journey, what would he tell himself now that you've had all these experiences? <laughs> I know how it worked out in the end. I kind of wish I would have worked harder, actually. Going really? back, looking back, I, I know the steps I had to take, but I look at all the other things I did on top of the writing, all the times I spent, you know, playing Xbox, the times I spent just, you know, watching TV and doing other stuff. And it's like, man, get going. You've got you've you've got the ability to do this. You've just got to put in the time. And I, I did put in the time, but I think I probably could have put in even more time. I wish I would have joined social media sooner as well. I joined in 2012, but Twitter had been around since 2007. I mean, obviously it wasn't as powerful of a platform back then, but yeah, basically just get in earlier. Uh, as far as abandoning journal, journalism, I'm glad I did that. As far as not quitting my day job, I'm glad I did that. So I, I did a lot of things right. I'm glad I went to build up an audience. But yeah, definitely if I had just started certain things earlier and put in time to the things I now know work, that would have been awesome. Could have, could have saved me a few years of toil. Now, when it comes to like the playing Xbox and, you know, not necessarily putting time towards what you were doing, was that procrastination? Was it like a fear of what could be? Was it a fear of an unknown? I'm curious because listen, there's times where, you know, I work from home myself. I run a business, but, you know, midday, lunch break, I'll play some Call of Duty every now and then, well, you know, like... <laughs> Yeah. And I probably gave the wrong impression there. I still have an Xbox. I finally just managed to buy an Xbox Series X like last week. So I shouldn't ask like <laughs> I act like I'm a total teetotaler on, on video games. But I think for a, a lot of years, maybe I just it wasn't my priority, especially right after 
I got out of uh, journalism. I was kind of adrift because my whole plan was to work my way up through journalism. When I abandoned that, it's like, well, I'll write, but I kind of picked at it here or there. Uh, and it's it's hard to get motivated sometimes when you know you're going to put all this time into something and nobody's going to read it. So I do still actually play Xbox, but I kind of, uh, I, I try to regulate it and fit it in. So it's like, okay, when I finish this chapter, my reward is that I can go play Xbox for the rest of the day. And uh, my last book, or I guess it's one that hasn't come out yet, a science fiction book. Like I powered through that thing in record times. I had a game I was addicted to and I wanted to get back to it. So I kind of harnessed that incentive system and it made me, uh, it made me more productive. And I think there's a way to do that. I also use it as a way to uh, stay in touch with my friends. So I think, you know, it's important to have that, uh, that work social life balance. And so every Friday night, my friends and I hop on Xbox live and we chat about our weeks and trade jokes and we play, you know, we play the game together. Uh, and that's been really important as well from a social environment. So I don't want to abandon it completely. Uh, at the same time, I think there were, were some months or years in there where maybe I played Xbox first and got to the writing later, if at all. I wasn't afraid of success. It's just there's a lot of distractions out there. And when you're not, when did, when when success is still an abstract idea in the far, far distant future, it's a lot easier to put off that writing. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I totally get that. I appreciate you sharing that. But let's talk about the new book. This is exactly how I found you. I think the title is freaking amazing. Um, and I just got the chills saying that I, I've had so many conversations about this recently. June 1st, how to be a man, whatever that means, lessons in masculinity from a questionable source. Uh, first question for you. What does masculinity mean to you? Well, I, I spent uh, 60,000 words trying to get a definition for that. And I'm not entirely sure I got there. Uh, it's a very complex subject to, uh, to to define. I think right now, manhood is mostly defined by what it's not. So the message we have in society is, you know, if you're a woman, you're a, you're, you're a perfect woman the way you are. There's no wrong way to be a woman. But if you're a man, the message is do better. And it's like, wow. I mean, we've got all these negative examples. Okay, don't do this. Don't do that. What should you do? And I think what you should do is live your own realized life. You set your goals, you go towards those goals, and you kind of define yourself. You don't allow yourself to be defined by others, by other men, by other women, by whoever. Uh, and as long as you are going towards your own goals and you are defining yourself in that context, I think you have achieved masculinity. I love that. Now, you know, I, I'm not playing devil's advocate here, but I'm really curious just to hear your opinion on this. You know, primally, we want to fit in, right? Mm -hmm. Like from a primal perspective, we want to fit in and society. And I don't want to necessarily refer to anyone as like a pack, but, you know, there's people that will do what society says, mm -hmm. you know, and we're, we're both aware of that. So, like, we want to fit into that. So I'm curious, like, how can we live our own truth when we kind of go against our primal instinct? It's like going up against the the, the ridge. It's It's tough. I think ultimately you have to be your own mental, you know, point of origin. I think that we do want to fit in society. I, I certainly do. We need other people to survive. Humans are social creatures, uh, but you have to kind of look at what your ultimate source of validation is. So when I write something, do I know it's good because somebody else tells me it's good? Do I know it's good because a book publisher picked it up? Or do I know it's good because it's the best I could do? Because I take pride in the work I did because I'm proud of the product I put out. And I think that masculinity comes down to 
that kind of that pride and that confidence in your own abilities. And, uh, you know, writing a tweet and getting lots of lots of likes and retweets, you know, that's that's useful feedback. Uh, but we have to be the ultimate judge of ourselves. And I think if you allow others to be the judge of you, uh, you kind of don't have that anchor. You don't know who you are. And as those around you change and as the perspective of society uh, changes, you're going to be adrift. So you can absolutely take feedback in from uh, from society. You can absolutely be part of society. Uh, but at the end of the day, you have to be happy with who you are and what you're doing. Have you experienced that outside validation, especially as a writer and putting himself out there in such a way? Yes. So, so I mean, that that's the constant struggle because right. uh, I want people to buy my books. I want people to like and retweet my tweets. I want them to join my newsletter. And for that, I have to figure out what people like. I have to build this audience. Now, I found the audience that kind of fit my ideals. I found the audience that jived with my sense of humor. And that was that was the goal. I didn't have to change myself. I just had to go out and find these people. At the same time, I had to figure out how to kind of package what I was, you know, serving up in the most appealing way. So uh, it is a balance. So, and I think it, it comes down to uh, to criticism too. So one of the things I've, I've found for coping is I don't usually read comments on Facebook or Twitter or wherever else. I mean, every once in a while I'll dive in, uh, but I, I, because I know on an intellectual level, not everybody's going to like me. That's not how society works. And there's going to be a million different opinions on jokes. And when you put a joke out in front of a million people, there's going to be a million opinions. And I realized I couldn't let my day be dictated by the whims of one person who was angry or one person who wanted to, you know, come in and kind of tear me down, but I'm still a human being. I have a, an emotional response. I have, you know, the fight, fight or flight part of my brain. And so I realized that if I'm going through and I read a hundred nice comments and I read one that's really mean and just strikes me the wrong way, that mean comments, what's going to stick in my head all day. And so how I cope with that is that I know mean comments exist. I know that they're out there and that's fine. That's, you know, that's what comes with the territory, but I just don't personally read them. I avoid them. And that's kind of how I insulate myself from that. I do the same thing with emails and people send me emails. I do actually see all of those, but you know, I'll, and I read them and I go and go and say, like, I, I usually like your comedy, but as soon as I get to the, butt, I just stop reading. It's like, I'm going to cut it off there. I get it. And so, and it comes down to, is this something I actually need feedback on? Or is this, uh, is this something that I I'm confident in what I did? So for example, with books, like I believe me, I know every single thing that's wrong with my books. I know what I did right, but I, I also know what I did wrong. I spent months and months pouring over these, those things with editors and you get to a point towards the end that some things just can't be fixed. They are what they are. And uh, do I need to go and read the one-star reviews on Amazon to see what I, what I did wrong? No, absolutely not. So I, I know there's some people out there who really don't like it. That's not going to be useful feedback for me. I can't change those books that are already finished. So I don't go there. So I, I get the validation. I get the feedback at stage where things can be changed, where I need to find the audience. But when a product's already finished, when it's done, when it's out there, that's the time I don't need feedback and I just move on. Right. I love that, man. Now, what was the motivation for this book? The motivation was that I've, for years been telling stories about my kids and about the present. So Twitter is very much in the moment. What happened today? What happened this week? Same thing with my, I have a newsletter with a pretty big audience where I write more long form stuff. And that's always, you know, what was the adventure of this week or this month? But I had all these funny stories that I had built up from my own life from before I was on social media and before I had this audience. And they're not timely, but they're hilarious. And uh, they kind of fit within my brand. And I wanted a place to tell those all. And I needed a kind of a theme to tie them together. 
together. So many of these stories are pre-kid, but they kind of shaped how I became the father I am and how they shaped my parenting style and all of that. So I, I thought of the theme of, you know, manhood and masculinity from all of these stories as I was growing up and kind of shaping into the person I am, you know, what, what were the lessons about manhood I took from these mishaps or what were the lessons I should have taken, but failed to take. Uh, and so that was the unifying theme. And I weave that together through all these funny stories. And that's how we ended up with this book. What, what's your favorite lesson within that book? Uh, my favorite lesson is from the second chapter. It's the story about the lawn gnome heist. And there's a, uh, basically when you're, you know, in manhood and they, they I guess they say this to women too. They say this to everybody, especially the, the idea of like being a man though. A man is honest. A man admits to his mistakes. You're very upfront about it. And uh, my roommates in college ran into a situation with the legal system. And uh, when the legal system is involved, it very much does not pay to be upfront. It very much does not pay to be honest. There's a reason that the fifth amendment, you know, the right to remain silent exists that uh, even if you're guilty, you still have that. And that the system is not looking out for your best interest. So, as, and uh, they didn't do that right away. Instead, they confessed and went out, and the promises were made, and promises were broken. So, I guess the the lesson at the at the start of the chapter, I say the lesson that you were taught about manhood is a man tells the truth, and I, towards the end, I say the the lesson is a man lawyers up, and that's that's what I took away from that. <laughs> if you get if you get involved with the legal system in any way, even if you want to tell the truth, you can absolutely tell the truth, but. Uh, Get that lawyer first. Make sure you've got somebody in your corner with you. <laughs> I love that. What do you feel like are the biggest misconceptions about masculinity? Like top three. I don't know if I have three just uh, laid out like that, but there's certainly a lot of them. I think one of them is that uh, part of masculinity is being in service to women. That's kind of like weird chivalry code. And that's, and I, I think that's completely wrong. You would never define women by what they can do for men. You shouldn't define men for what they should do for women. I would say another one is that men have to be kind of this macho uh, Ron Swanson stereotype. Now, don't get me wrong. I love, I love parks and rec. I love Ron Swanson, but you don't have to be a guy going it alone in the woods, not trusting the financial system to be a man. That's totally unnecessary. And then I think another one would be that men don't show weakness. They just have the, uh, you know, that they have their emotions all under control. I don't think that's the case at all. I think part of uh, masculinity is being able to show that vulnerability uh, to kind of show where you come up short and to ask for help when you need it. I think there's nothing unmanly about asking for help. Right. You know, I, I really appreciate your approach to this topic as well, like intertwining your brand into this. I, I mean, we had a very deep conversation on the podcast, I want to say a few episodes ago, and not that it came off like super serious, but like there was no comedy relief whatsoever. <laughs> you know, like there really wasn't. We we shared laughs for sure. Mm -hmm. But I, I just appreciate your twist on it because it, it's like it was coming in my mind. I'm like, okay, cool. Like how can we continue to get this message out there? Which is why I was just mm -hmm. like so amped to have you here. Um, and you're, you're doing it in a way that hasn't been done yet. You know, and I, I just wanted to shine light on that. I, I appreciate that. And I think I think comedy is a great vehicle to get a good message out there. Like, as you said, you know, if you're always serious about everything, people don't like to be lectured at. They really don't. They don't want to say, you know, a list of orders or instructions. This is how it has to be. But sometimes the best way to get that lesson across is say, hey, here's some funny stuff. Here's what I learned from it. Here's another way to look at manhood. It's a it's a much more appealing package. Right now, if a reader of this book could only take one thing away from it. What would you want that one thing to be? 
I would say the one thing I'd want them to take away is that um, there is no one definition of manhood. And because of that, there is no one wrong way to be a man. If you feel if you are a guy and you feel like you're failing at manhood, uh, I would I would say take a closer look at what you're doing. And as long as you are pursuing your own goals and as long as you are being your own judge, I'd say that you can succeed at manhood in a way that's totally different than the way I succeeded at manhood or the way anybody else succeeded at manhood. Right. I love that. I definitely appreciate that. Now, I'm sure you've done podcasts before. You have people following you, you have the newsletter, et cetera. What is a question you wished more people would ask you? <laughs> it's a it's a really interesting time to ask that because I'm on the podcast tour and I sometimes feel like I've been asked every question under the sun. I've been asked about, you know, the kids, the pigs, the writing, all of that. Uh, but I suppose something I don't get asked a lot. Hmm. You know what? I think you finally stumped me. I think I don't know that there's anything I haven't been asked. I guess uh, I guess I don't get asked a ton about my marriage. That's probably the the one area that, that gets asked about the least. Uh, you know, how does my wife feel about all of this? Uh, and uh, the answer to that is that uh, she's been very supportive from the start. Uh, when we got together in college, I mean, I was going into journalism and never never marry a journalist. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I was going into newspapers. I don't know if you've heard of this, but the internet exists, and it was it was a terrible time to get into journalism of any form, but especially in print journalism. Uh, but she knew my ultimate goal was to be a comedy writer and to kind of, you know, branch out from there. Uh, so she's been with me from the start uh, and her support's been really important because, you know, I write about our family. And uh, if she had said from the start, you know, I'm not comfortable about this, I would have been dead in the water on day one. So even though she's not on these podcasts with me, she's not in the videos with me, you know, her support has been critical for this all the way up through this book. Uh, this book was one I had to make sure uh, that she read through beforehand because there's a lot of personal stories, not just about me, but about us, about how our relationship uh, came together, about how we uh, how we uh, got through some really tough times in that chapter about vulnerability. Uh, so she's she's been my rock on this. Now, how did you know your wife was the one? Well, she put up with me. So, I mean, that's, okay. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the pretty big thing. Um, you know what though? It's, it's the weird. Okay. That is actually a question I have never been asked, legitimately never been asked that. And, you know, I don't even know if I've told my wife this, but there was a moment in, uh, in college where I had been playing uh, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas on Xbox, <laughs> like for hours. I just, I didn't have anything else to do. I just been wasting all day in my dorm and I got done with it. I just, I just felt terrible. I just felt all of sorts. I've been running around shooting people online, or I guess that wasn't online. I guess just on my own console. And I just, it's hard to describe the feeling, but I just felt all out of sorts and, and not that great. And I went over to her dorm room to hang out with her for a little bit, have that actual human connection. And I remember just laying down and, and, you know, just holding hands or she hugged me something along those lines. And I felt completely better. Like it just kind of recalibrated uh, me and brought me back to reality. And I thought I could get used to this. I, I could live like this forever. And that was kind of the moment where I realized there was something special there. And it sounds so anticlimactic, a day of bad video games, and then, you know, a brief contact with the girlfriend. But that, uh, that really was when that, when that happened, I was like, I think, uh, I think this is something I want in my life for good. I think that's a beautiful thing, man. I really do. <laughs> I'm curious though, what would be your advice for men that are listening to this based off of what we've already talked about, especially with the masculinity thing and society and fitting in, et cetera, what would be your advice when it comes to dating or marriage to those men? It could be anything. Uh, I'm just curious to hear what you have to say there. 
I would say be upfront uh, with yourself and with everybody else about what you want. Uh, I think there's probably nothing worse for anybody. If you get into a, you know, if you, if you don't want to do long-term relationships, don't do long-term relationships. That's nothing wrong. I'm not here to judge. If you just want to get married, there's nothing wrong with that either. Uh, I think what there is something wrong with is uh, misleading somebody from the start saying, Hey, I'm a serious relationship guy. And two months later, you're like, actually, I want to date like 50 people. So just figure out who you are and what kind of lifestyle you want and be upfront with the people you date about that, that, right. you know, what, what you're actually looking for. Cause I think that's, uh, you know, that that's what dating is. It's just looking for the right person. And maybe that's the right person to have a series of flings with. Maybe that's the right person to spend your life with and build a family, but make sure you know what you want before you go out there and then make it clear to other people uh, what you want. There's nothing wrong with rejection. I think rejection is great because that's part of finding who you need. You can't find who you need if everybody you don't need is in the way. So uh, just be upfront with it, uh, you know, and don't, don't hide your true intentions just to avoid that rejection. So what's your advice about handling rejection though? Cause that's not easy, you know, and we were kind of talking about it from the business side of mm-hmm. things where you notice maybe people aren't, you know, um, loving your jokes or, you know, maybe mm-hmm. they don't love your product or whatever the case is, but when it's personal, we can, we can find ourselves personalizing that, you know? I- I think that comes back to being your own source of validation. Correct. Because if you are relying on anyone else, be it a business client or a date, to say you are worthy and you are a you know you're a valuable person, then you are you're going to be devastated every time you get dumped, every time somebody flakes on you, every time they you know they say no to a date, and all of a sudden, well, I'm not worth it. It's like, well, your value didn't change just because somebody you barely know and who barely knows you said no does not change who you are and doesn't change what you offer in the world. It just means that on the surface, they weren't interested in that. And that's great. Why would you want to waste your your time and energy convincing somebody who's not that into you at step one uh, to be into you later on? And I, I remind myself of that, uh, you know, for example, with my, my newsletter. So the way my business is kind of structured is I've got my tweets out there for free and they're just short bits of my comedy. And then I kind of try to pull people in to the newsletter, which is, you know, 2000, you know, words long and the, and that's free as well. And then if they like those 2000 words and I try to pie up, you know, pull them in and buy these 60,000 word books. And so when somebody moves from a tweet to, you know, the newsletter and they read it and then they say, this is awful. I don't want this. And they leave. I've, kind of train myself. It's like, okay, that's fine. Cause that's what this process is about. It's not just about readers finding me. It's about me finding my readers. And if you come into step two and say, you know what, I don't like you in 2000 word chunks. That's fine because there's people out there who do. And uh, the fact that they aren't into it doesn't change the fact that I'm proud of what I wrote in that newsletter and that I'm proud of the product I put out. Right. I love that, man. I love that. Something I'm learning myself is dealing with that type of shit. I just had mm-hmm. 18 people unsubscribe from my newsletter last week. And it was like a shot in the heart. I'm like, Oh, fuck! there goes 18. Oh, you know what? As your newsletter gets bigger, it just goes up on the scale. So you've kind of got to like, you know, run fast to stay in place. So every time I send a newsletter, I lose between a hundred and 200 followers or 200 subscribers. I mean, it's just a huge chunk of people. So I have to make sure I gain more than that. And almost every week I am trending upwards, but at the same time, it's kind of humbling to think when this goes out, 200 people are going to choose to never read anything. I write again. So yeah, you have to, you have to really be confident what you're doing to deal with the rejection on that scale. A hundred percent, man. A hundred percent. Wow. So you talked about parenthood a couple of times. I mean, I'm, I'm not a parent, so I'm curious, like what has been your biggest lesson from being a parent? 
Uh, I think the the biggest lesson is that I need to be the kind of person I want my kids to turn into because they are watching all the time. They're always around whether you want them to be or not. Uh, and it's great. I, I love having a family. I love that I can kind of teach them and mold them and mess them up in all the fun ways. Uh, but at the same time, I, I realize that like the, the best lessons I'm teaching them, it's not like when I sit them down and say, this is what life is like. It's when they see me living my life. So when I, you know, when I get flustered, when I lose my temper it's like oh no that can it's not just my you know shortcoming you know personally it's my shortcoming like as an example to them so it's really pushed me to be a better person do i succeed no not usually absolutely not <laughs> uh, that's why twitter is great you know i can i can put up the funny moments and not all the other moments of failure that are best swept under the rug uh but they are pushing me to be better and to keep that self-improvement going and it, it helps keep my focus that so i'm not just worried about the business that i'm actually you know worried worried about improving personally as well to kind of help their growth and development. Now you have four girls, correct? Yes. Four daughters. And what's that like? It's uh, I'm very outnumbered now so, so on a lot of things. You know, I just wrote a book about masculinity. I live in a house of all girls, you know, below a certain age, little kids are kind of androgynous. You know, it's not much different raising a boy than a girl. Uh, you know, they like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and all that fun stuff. At the same time, there are moments where it becomes very clear that there are, are gender differences, at least in the way they choose to uh, live their lives and in their interests. When we go out to some fancy function, like we went to a baby shower this weekend and I was, you you know, dressed and ready in 10 seconds and they're over here and they're spending all this time picking out dresses and there's all these layers and there's so much more involved. And, and this is when they're little. My oldest is only 11 now. My youngest is five. And I just, I, I know that process, you know, every time we go out to some formal function that involves dresses, it's going to get, you know, more and more involved. And we're not even into the makeup stage yet. So I think uh, bathroom space is very quickly going to come to a, be at a premium in my house. <laughs> That's going to be a big piece of real estate right there. Mm -hmm. I love it. Uh, on the way out of these interviews, James, we asked two questions and I'm really curious to hear your take on them. I don't want to stump you. Uh, that's, that's not the goal here. Um, but the first question is, what is a piece of advice that you've been given that you didn't want to hear at the time it was given to you, but proved to be true? You know, I've, I haven't had a lot of mentors like sit me down and say, this is this is the advice. I've, I've, I've read a lot of advice. So I did a lot of research um, and uh, probably the best advice I've been given uh, comes back to that uh, being your own judge. And I can't even point to who uh, who would have said it. It might have just kind of been kind of been an overall online community. But that's something that carries through through everything. And it's something I'm still very working on. There is no area of life where if you are the ultimate judge of your character, if you are the ultimate judge of your actions and you are the ultimate uh, source of your own validation, that that won't help you. And we're talking professionally, romantically, you know, just family life, everything. Uh, so sorry, whoever the person was who told me that, but wherever I picked that up, that was the best <laughs> advice. No, I love that, man. I definitely love that. Now, if James can only give one piece of advice for the rest of his life, if you were writing books or hopping on more podcasts, tweeting, et cetera, if you can only tweet one piece of advice or give one piece of advice for the rest of your life, what would that be? Uh, chase your passions, but don't quit your day job. I mean, that's really where it's at. If you keep that day job, if you keep your health insurance, if you keep your salary, you can chase your dreams forever on the side. You can build up and you can, you can, 
enjoy that passion. You can develop your skills. And if it doesn't happen right away, they can't starve you out. You don't have a time limit. You can be 80 years old and still writing novels in your free time. You can be, you know, 70 and still write, you know, making art or doing, doing whatever else, you know, pursuing, you know, you know, baking or becoming a sommelier, everything like that. It just, uh, it makes life so much easier. I think the idea of a starving artist uh, is a myth. I guess that, that is one good piece of advice I read in a, uh, in a book. And I don't predict, I think there might even be a, a book titled the starving art artist myth or something very similar to that. Uh, but yeah, there, there's no, there's no glory in starving yourself and kind of being this uh, bohemian artist always on the, on the fringe of financial ruin. I think there's a lot to be said by living a traditional life, supporting yourself and then pursuing passions in addition to that. It's a much more healthy and stable way. And I think it's the way that ensures you the greatest chance of success. Right. Agreed. Agreed. After me doing it backwards, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but it's working for you. You did it. And that's, those are the stories you love to hear. I mean, it absolutely can work. Uh, The problem is sometimes it doesn't, not everybody has your drive and your ambition and your luck. And when it, you know, when it goes bad, they kind of slink back to that day job and they're like, I guess I'm not going to chase my dreams anymore. It's like, no, that's the complete wrong lesson to take from it. Keep chasing your dreams. Just make sure you got a backup plan too. Exactly. Yeah. Listen, I I can't sit here and say that it wasn't difficult. Uh, Mm -hmm. A lot, a lot, a lot of failures, of course, for sure. And I know many more to come. I'm not mad at that. But James, I definitely appreciate this. Is there anything else that you have on the horizon that we didn't talk about that you want to make people aware of? Uh, the big thing is the book you mentioned a, men, uh, a minute ago, How to Be a Man, Whatever That Means, Lessons of Modern Masculinity from a Questionable Source. And I assure you there is, in fact, no source more questionable than me. Uh, the release date is officially listed as June 1st, depending on the website. Uh, but most retailers will send it out early. So if you order it now, it could be on the way almost right away. I've got a science fiction book coming out next year that I'm really excited about, but we're not talking about that too much right now. But I've also, uh, in terms of the things I put out regularly, um, my newsletter is something I have a big push on. So if you go to my website, explodingunicorn.com, you can subscribe to my newsletter. And I put out a 2000 word comedy article every week. And if you multiply that out by 52 weeks a year, that's like a hundred thousand words of free content. That's almost two free books I put out. Uh, and I just, uh, I love doing that. I started out early on. My first medium for writing was emails and all the way now when I've kind of 15 years later, come to this point in my career, I'm back at email and I, I love it just as much now as I did then. So I definitely encourage people to subscribe. You know what? I actually, you just brought another question to mind. I'm just really curious. How do you get in the creative space to continue writing? Like you obviously have a lot going on in your household. You have four children, you're married, you have a day job, et cetera. Like how do you find yourself getting into that creative space? I find that I just have to have discipline and a schedule. So for example, Sunday is newsletter day. And that is, that is what I do. That is my top priority. I think the the problem people run into when they're trying to have a day job and a family and a side project and all of that is they never reserve time for themselves. They say, I will do my passion project if there's time, but there will never be time there. Everything in your life will encroach on that. There will always be something else to fix for the house. There will always be something else to do for your day job or for your family. But for example, on Sunday, it's like, okay, my top priority is this newsletter and anything else I do is going to have to come in secondary. Or, you know, I, you know, I have a web comic I do every single day. I put out thousands. I think I'm like two or 3000 of them. Uh, You know, it's just every single day I have to do this every single day. I write two to three tweets every single day this happens. Uh, So have the discipline and the self-respect to block out the time Uh, you are worth it. And your, your projects are too. 
I definitely appreciate that. Now, James, we're going to have socials, websites where people can get the book in the show notes of this episode, man. Definitely appreciate your time today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on here. I love talking business about this stuff. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, episode number 187 with our friend James Breakwell. You could check out the show notes of this episode where you're able to find James's social handles, website, where you can get the book and more. Make sure you're connecting with him. And if you do, make sure you let him know you heard him here on Decoding Success. Again, if you found this episode to be of value, which you're all the way at the end of it, I would assume you have found this to be of value. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening this far. Now, I would ask you to make sure you're sharing it, whether it's on social media or the people in your circle or with the people in your circle, I should say, that means the absolute world to us. Or, hey, maybe you just want to shoot us feedback directly. I get so many text messages. I get so many emails about these episodes that we're putting out. And that means the absolute world to us. I'm telling you, like you throw positive fuel on the fire to keep us chugging along as we're approaching episode 200. So I just want to say thank you to everyone that reaches out about these episodes. And until next time, everyone be blessed. Peace.